In today's political lexicon, populism is now synonymous with Donald Trump, with Brexit, with right-wing politics, and with an undesirable rebellion against stable political institutions. But is populism always a bad thing? My guest today rejects this basic premise and has been working his entire political career to try to understand and harness the potential good side of populist movements here in Canada. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. It's a pleasure and an honor today to be joined by Mr. Preston Manning. Preston Manning is one of the most prominent conservative politicians and political leaders in Canadian history and has a thorough understanding of the rise of populism in Canada and around the world. He's often called the father of modern-day Canadian conservatism. Preston was a founder and the only leader of the Reform Party of Canada, which became the Canadian Alliance Party, which eventually merged with the Progressive Conservative Parties to form the Conservative Party of Canada, which was led by Stephen Harper and was held government for nearly a decade. Um, Although no longer a politician, Preston remains a prominent voice in Canadian politics and is in in promoting Western Canadian interests in 2005. Preston created the Canada Strong and Free Network. Well, it was called the Manning Center before, and now it's called the Canada Strong and Free Network. Um, the group has helped shape national conversations around conservatism, influence government policies, and helped create a university program at Carleton University, the first program aimed at political management. So Preston, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to speak to you today. Well, thank you very much. It's great. <laughs> okay, well, I, I want to I first start off by talking a little bit about just what what just happened, what just happened in our country with the trucker convoy, the sort of political uprising against the Trudeau government, and how it was handled by both Justin Trudeau, his government, as well as the media here in Canada. I think the audience knows my uh, position on this issue thoroughly, but I'm, I'm wondering what, uh, what, what is your take? How do you think it folded out? How do you think it could have been handled differently by the politicians and the media in this country? Well, I think I know some truckers, independent truckers. Uh, our family has a small ranching operation. We use truckers to take cattle to community pastures and to uh, processing plants. But I, I, I felt this uh, truckers' conflict was a legitimate expression of concern by uh, people who were affected by the vaccine mandates. In their case, it put some 15,000 of them out of work. And I feel it was a legitimate bottom-up political protest. It had these populist dimensions. And and the sad thing was the way the federal government responded to it, uh, they they wouldn't even meet with these uh, people. And uh, the prime minister immediately characterized them as uh, extremists and uh, and, uh, that this was financed or originated in the United States, which is completely false. So I, I think it was a legitimate expression of um, political concern by a legitimate group of people and that the Ottawa government responded inappropriately. Well, I, I mean, just beyond that, if, if it was a legitimate and peaceful movement uh, of, of a group of people who just wanted their demands to be heard and the response wasn't just to you know, dismiss them, smear them, refuse to meet with them, but but actually use a, a emergency act that had never been invoked before was created in 1988 uh, with, with the desired impact of use only during severe national emergencies and potentially war. Uh, what, what kind of precedent does it set as a government um, who's so unwilling to talk to a, a group of people that he would, he, would, he would take such drastic action against them? Yeah. Well, I, I think it was an enormous overreaction. And, and the question it raises is the question you're 
raising it if the, the Trudeau government would overreact to uh, legitimate protests like that uh, by invoking the Emergency Act, on what other occasions would they do the same thing? And uh, I, I feel that the justification for the invoking the Emergency Act was never really proven by the government. They very hastily retreated from it. But uh, again, it's just an extreme overreaction and a misunderstanding or deliberate misunderstanding of what these people were trying to do and what they're trying to accomplish. One of the things that was striking to me uh, about the people who were who were behind the trucker convoy, the people who characterized the protests in Ottawa, um, was sort of the difference between them and the normal people, the normal type of people you see in Canadian political life, uh, the normal kind of people that you see protesting. It's usually sort of uh, aggrieved uh, left-wing people who, who protest, who go out and gather on Parliament Hill and, and who occupy, you know, the whole Occupy movement came from Occupy Wall Street, which was an anti-capitalist left-wing um, movement. What do you think about the idea that that uh, many of these truckers were sort of apolitical or not are not necessarily politically engaged, and the sort of the 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 the, the action of them coming and, and becoming political, coming to Ottawa, uh, was met with such scorn and uh, name calling? Uh, how do you think that'll impact the, those individuals or the individuals who supported well, I, them? I think it shows the Canadians the contempt that the Ottawa elites have for just ordinary folks and the fear that they seem to have of them. And, uh, and then the inconsistencies when left-wing protesters shut down uh, rail lines that carry 20% of Canada's exports to Asia over them, the, the government almost sided with the protesters and didn't regard this as an emergency. But uh, somebody shuts down the, the bridge at Windsor, and this this is a national catastrophe, calling for the invoking of the Emergency Act. The inconsistency in that response, uh, in addition to its overhandedness and inappropriateness, uh, I, I think all of this, the net effect of it, is to reduce the confidence of Canadians increasingly in the uh, in the Trudeau administration. This is just one of a number of things, but it adds to the list. It adds to the list. What do you think of the the sort of class divide that was on display? I know that uh, many many people in government and media have dismissed this idea that, that what we saw was a sort of working class uprising that was that was dismissed and disregarded by a group of elites in Ottawa. But you you, you can't help but notice the sort of the, the idea that that uh, there's a New York Times op-ed that put it really well, and it sort of talked about the, the not necessarily class divide, but the difference between um, people who live their life virtually, who whose jobs that can be done remotely, can be done on a computer. It, it you know doesn't COVID didn't really have a, a huge huge impact on them uh, versus people who lived in the practical world. So they had virtuals versus practicals. People who lived in the practical world are the ones that own small businesses, that own restaurants, that drive trucks, that work at the frontline workers. The the, the people who've been harmed disproportionately by COVID uh, were, were many of the sort of loudest voices uh, praising and, and pushing the trucker convoy uh, because they've gone out to the real world and lived in COVID and they're ready to move on. Whereas the people who are kind of sheltered behind their screens haven't had to have the same interaction. And, and many of them are, are legitimately uh, and reasonably perhaps afraid to go back out into the world. And so you kind of have these two different camps of people that are very much uh, have different interests and, and perhaps it's hard, hard for them to understand what it's like to be on the other side, but certainly the, the, the sort of virtual side of the elites uh, disregarding the, the working class or the, the practicals uh, was, was really quite stark. Uh, what, did, did, you, did you notice a sort of class oh, element yes. to these protests? I, I don't think the, uh, the establishment 
even understands how its messaging was impacting or being received or even being considered relevant by those uh, people. I, I mentioned the ranching operation. You, you have guys that are looking after cattle sitting in a mobile home on a wintering quarter that I know of is, uh, watching this nice lady on TV in a warm studio in Edmonton or Ottawa telling them to stay home and be safe. Well, these guys start to laugh. If, if we stay in here, those cattle won't get fed. You know, our, our job by city standards is never considered safe. But uh, so the, the, just a complete lack of resonance uh, of that message with people that were in those situations. And this is true for uh, thousands and thousands of workers, particularly in the resource sectors that are out there doing something, whether it's agriculture or energy or mining or forestry or the fishery. You take Aboriginal people. I mean, I think the mining sector in BC is the largest single employer of Aboriginal people, but they're, they're out there doing things. They can't stay home and be safe the way this message is coming to them from the, the health authorities. So that, that lack of, uh, uh, of resonance between the source of the message and the receiver is part of the root of this misunderstanding, I think, over the whole COVID crisis. That's such a good point. You, you, I, I want to, I want to touch on populism because I, I know this is an area that yeah. you've talked about and worked on a long time. I listened to your podcast with Jordan Peterson where you talked about sort of positive populism. I, I hope you could sort of help us understand because usually it's used as a negative word to, to describe people who are trying to sort of undermine the political stability. Uh, but, but, but you see a different side of populism. So I'm hoping you can sort of well, yeah, talk a little bit about what populism that, means. Uh, it's so unfortunate that populism is misunderstood by. Canadians, and I've argued, and I think I can prove it, that Western Canada has had more experience with populist movements, populist parties, and populist governments than virtually any other part of North America. And while populism has its wild and woolly side, our the Canadian experience with it, let's say in the 20th century, has been has been relatively positive. And just to give a few examples, the first woman that got elected to the uh, Parliament of Canada, how did she get there? Through what movement? She didn't get there through the Liberals or the Conservatives in that day. The Liberals did everything in their power to knock her out of that Parliament, and eventually they did. She came up through the old progressive movement, which is basically a farmer's movement, which was a populist bottom-up party. The, the so-called famous five, the women that got women elected or recognized as persons in Canadian law, all five of them were populist. Uh, two or three of them were elected as populist to the uh, Alberta legislature. So there's a uh, populism can accomplish some pretty positive things. Whether you agree with Canadian Medicare or not, uh, that came out of uh, Saskatchewan through the CCF, which was the uh, uh, a bottom-up populist uh, party, particularly at that time. It, it, it was the champion of that uh, particular social reform. The, uh, the constitutional change that got uh, natural resources finally, uh, the ownership of natural resources recognized in terms of the provinces, particularly the Western provinces, that, that was achieved by farmers' governments, the UFA in Alberta, small group of progressives in the federal parliament. So you can list off these positive accomplishments by po uh, populist movements and, uh, and populist government. Now, now, it doesn't mean they don't have a, a wild and woolly side, and whether they 
end up being making that positive contribution or whether they turn negative very, very much depends on the, the leadership and, and it depends on the reaction of the establishment. Most of these populist parties and governments are a reaction to what was there before. Trump is the legacy of Obama. Doug Ford is the legacy of Catherine Ford in Ontario. So uh, I, I argue there's a pop, there's a positive side if they're properly led and properly understood. Well, so it's it's interesting now because you you sort of see different camps in the Conservative Party right now. You know, Aaron O'Toole stepped down, and with without without a certain leader, there there's sort of different elements of the party popping up. How, what would your advice be to the Conservative Party and anyone looking to run it on on how best to connect with the grassroots, how to utilize the sort of success uh, of and the growth of the truck convoy? In, in helping to sort of steer the party in, in more of a, a positive populist way that really connects with voters, connects with the grassroots, understands their concerns, and can relay those messages to Ottawa without the sort of effect of being in Ottawa for too long, which is that you start to sound more like the establishment and less like the people who sent you there. Well, I think you use the right word when you say connect. I think the first step is to connect with them. And the, and the first step to connecting with people is just to listen to them just to listen to them. And uh, uh, I use the analogy, and I think you've heard me on this before, of uh, in the oil patch, there's uh, such a thing as a wildcat well that's drilled into a formation where you don't know what's down below. And then there's such a thing as a road well that get, get drills into a formation where there's an enormous amount of oil or gas under pressure. And it could be very dangerous. It can blow the the drilling platform off the wellhead, it can catch fire, it can be enormously dangerous. But uh, w one of the ways of bringing a, a road well under control is you drill in a relief well from the side and the angle has to be right. If it's too shallow, it won't take off enough pressure. If it's too deep, it can turn into a road well. But if it's just right, uh, it can take off enough pressure that valves can be installed and all that valuable energy can be harnessed to useful purposes. But the, the, the important thing there is that that relief well has to connect with that whatever is underneath that rogue well. You have to identify with whatever is causing all this energy and all this, uh, this activity. And that's the first step. And in a sense, that's what reform was in the 1980s. There, there was a strong anti-federal government, anti-federal party atmosphere in Western Canada. It produced separatist movements. Separatist party elected a member to the Alberta legislature. And, and the, what reform did was drill in that relief well from the side. And so we had to identify with what was making those people mad. We said, yeah, you got a right to be mad. And we're mad too. But instead of blowing the whole thing up, how about doing this, this, and this? You know, Senate reform, balance the budget, uh, regional impact assessments, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's the challenge for, uh, as there's populism developing today, I, I think it's gonna be very interesting whether this uh, uh, freedom convoy morphs into a broader common sense movement of some kind. But the challenge for the political leadership, conservative and, and others will be to identify with the root causes of it. and. Uh, and then propose uh, better alternatives, perhaps, in how to achieve the objectives. One of the things that I see uh, as sort of a, a, a clash within conservatism, within the conservative movement, is that conservatives by nature 
um, you know, the reason that they're conservatives is because they want to conserve something. So they tend to, uh, you know, be patriotic and supportive of our institutions and our networks that have created this sort of very stable, prosperous society. Uh, but at the same time in Canada, the institutions that we have uh, are, are also built and crafted around sort of big L liberalism in, in many ways, Preston. And, and a lot of the institutions are simply not holding up uh, to scrutiny under the pressures of COVID. Uh, the, the reality, for instance, of the, the media landscape, uh, one of the things that was just so, I, I observed it over the entire period of COVID, but during the protest, it just so blatantly obvious how corrupted and how uh, focused on a narrative and, and not uh, willing to look outside and not willing to paint an objective picture um, to Canadians. Um, you know, there's so many examples, but 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 you know, to a to a almost partisan sense, um, the media is corrupted. Uh, well, how how do you think that this this uh, relationship between protecting institutions and a need to identify and remove corrupted institutions or or institutions that have are no longer serving their good? Um, how do you think that conservatives can kind of approach well, and, and I, I fix this you issue? Can, you got to make the argument, and it's not made much in the public arena, that it's possible to both conserve uh, an institution and to change it for the better at the same time. That conservation and change are not mutually exclusive. In, in fact, you could argue that they almost have to go together. Uh, Edmund Burke argued this, that... Uh, you know, he, he was all for conserving certain things, but he advocated certain things had to change in order to conserve them. And I think that argument needs to be refined. One of my own illustrations, I used to do community development work up in North Central Alberta. And there was a sign on an old road away back in the bush. Uh, and it was on a big post and it had a huge uh, crossfire on it. It had one word on it, saw ridge and an arrow pointing west. And it was supposed to tell you how to get to the town of Sawridge. The only problem was it was if you followed that sign, you'd never get to Sawridge. Well, why was that? The, the sign never changed. The sign always said the same thing. It always pointed in the same direction. It was as conservative as you can get. But uh, during the, the, the years back, the, there was a flood that the town of Sawridge had to move its location. It changed its name to the town of Slave Lake. The roads to get there had been changed half a dozen times. So the very fact that the sign didn't change uh, was a source of error r rather than, uh, th than truth. And so, if you and I think there's a lesson in that that you you got you got to have signposts and you got to have them firm in the ground and everything else. But sometimes what's on them has to change in order to get to the original objective. And I think that's true whether you're talking about how to conserve the democracy or a, uh, a viable private sector in the economy. And if conservatives could refine that, we want to conserve. Here's what we want to conserve. But here's the changes we want to make in order to, I think people could understand that. I think they could understand that. And just going back to the point you made earlier about how when the Reform Party came around as sort of a relief valve for those who were sort of fed up with the status quo, uh, the, the result was very real and substantive change. I mean, talking about some of the things that you mentioned, what the conservatives stood for was was really sort of an overhaul of, of some of the uh, institutional decay that was happening. Do you think we're at a time now, uh, you know, this is what, 30, 40 years after the birth of the reform movement, we're ready for another set of drastic reforms to our political system uh, well, to, to, I, I to think, save it? I think you have to do this every so often. When, when the Reform Party was put together, I, the lawyer the lawyer that put its constitution together was a fellow by the name of Bob Muir, a real fine 
lawyer in Calgary, and uh, when we were talking about it, I said, Bob, I want a, a, a clause in a sunset clause in the constitution of this part. Well, he says, well, well what do you mean? Well, I want it to come to an end in 10 years. Uh, it's a, if the party members decide to just renew it the way it is, they can, but I, I want a sunset clause in it. And by golly, we had one in there. And, uh, would, and it was to be 10 years uh, that the party would cease to exist unless the members reinstituted it and recreated it, either in its original form or something else. And by golly, by 1997, <laughs> it was clear that reform had gone about as far as we could go with it and we needed this bigger broader thing we wanted to form an alliance with the uh, uh, particularly the pro provincial conservatives in Alberta Manitoba and Mike Harris in Ontario and that's what gave the opportunity to create the Canadian alliance uh, which then morphed into the uh, Conservative Party of Canada. So I, 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 you don't want to do this every day. You don't want to rethink your fundamental <laughs> principles or organizations every day. I mean, political parties have to have some continuity and stability. But I, I think periodically, and particularly in the age in which we live, when change is so fast, everything else is changing, that there should be a recognition every so often we got to make some fundamental changes in order to be relevant or uh, to be able to address the problems that are, are confronting the country. The federal liberals to do this is going to end up being their Achilles, Achilles heel, uh, and in a way, I think I think one of the consequences of this post of this uh, COVID thing is there's going to be have to be changes in leadership. There's rumblings within the federal liberals already that Trudeau has to go. People looking for Mark Carney or somebody else. There's rumbles within the NDP. You've got the the NDP members that come from ridings where they've got private sector union members who've lost their jobs and their incomes. And these guys are starting to resent the, the, the support of the public sector unions. There's other people in the NDP that support them who were not only protected throughout this whole thing, some of them got wage increases. So you've got internal forces there that are gonna force the NDP to decide where it's gonna go. So you've got internal forces for leadership changes within the Liberals, within the NDP. It's already starting. In, in this sense, the Conservative Party of Canada is ahead of the others. And that's one of the consequences of this uh, turmoil that's been created by the, uh, the COVID crisis. Okay, well, let's let's shift and talk a little bit about COVID because I, you know, when you look at the trucker convoy, even though sure they got cleared out with excessive force by police, but but some of the things that they were advocating for, they they, they started to see real impact almost immediately. Uh, Preston, uh, Quebec re reversed its vaccine mandate tax, uh, vaccine tax, anti-vax tax. If you weren't vaccinated, you were going to get an extra tax. They reversed that almost immediately. Uh, several of the provinces have since lifted most of their restrictions. Uh, we we have seen the 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 major points that the truckers were advocating for um, be uh, th those goals were accomplished. So let's talk a little bit about the post-COVID agenda. What, what should it look like in Canada and how can we get there? Well, I think what, one way to come at agenda is to look at what has the, uh, the, the uh, COVID crisis, what weaknesses has it revealed in our systems uh, that are going to have to be uh, addressed and, and and one of them is just the, the whole way the thing was managed. So I, I think one of the things on the post-COVID agenda is going to be an investigation into law. It, it probably won't be done by this government, but if it's the government, the federal government's replaced, I think that'd be one of the first things any new government would do. It'll appoint a commission of some sort to get at uh, what went wrong in the management of the uh, crisis. And then what was another weakness that was revealed? Well, what was the weakness of the Canadian healthcare system? 
that the that Canadian Medicare is 60 years old and was simply incapable of meeting the surge in demand that the COVID crisis uh, feels. So what are we going to do about that? What changes, healthcare changes, are we going to make? And we're going to look at other countries, the countries that had mixed systems, public and private systems were able to cope with the surge in demand better than our system. So that's going to be another, I think, another listing on the agenda for the the, coast, um, uh, the post-COVID period will be that sort of healthcare reform thing. And, and then a third thing will be the, uh, what has to be done to better protect the rights and freedoms that people thought were guaranteed by the constitution. It, it was clear that the government could override those. That there were literally millions of violations of the so-called uh, sacred rights in, in the constitution. And uh, so what's going to be done to, uh, to, to address that. Uh, I think one of the areas you're going to get into there, and you're familiar with this, there, there's a test called the Oaks uh, test. It comes out of a legal case in 1986, where the Supreme Court of Canada said, if you're going to limit the rights and freedoms that are guaranteed in the constitution, you have, the government has to demonstrate, and it's the government that has to demonstrate it, has to demonstrate that the benefits of the limitation outweigh the negative impacts now that was never done in this case. If you want to show that your limitation outweighs the negative impacts, for one thing, you got to measure the impacts, or at least try to estimate. There was never any impact assessment made on the uh, health protection measures as to what their impact would be on the health system itself, let alone on the civil liberties of Canadians. And there was never any economic impact assessment done on those health protection measures. And so I think, I, I think that's something that's going to have to be written into law. You want to limit those rights in the Constitution, you've got to show, show that the impacts uh, are, that, that the benefits outweigh the impact, and you've got to make an assessment of the impacts, or else the courts will declare your, whatever your health protection measure is, your protection measure is as, as unconstitutional. So there's, I see this list, an investigation into well, what went wrong and what went right with respect to the, the management, what has to be done with the healthcare system because this crisis proved it to be inadequate. What are the additions to the, uh, what has to be done to strengthen the limit, the uh, protection of rights and freedoms because obviously the, whatever we had before wasn't uh, sufficient. And uh, I, I can see a list of about eight things being a part of the, the post-COVID agenda that somebody's going to have to get after. And, and one of them is even that thing you mentioned before is leadership changes. What changes have to be made in the leadership of the federal political parties in order to make some progress on that agenda? One of the things, I mean, we've been talking about populism and the sort of rise of the anti-COVID uh, mandates and, and practices uh, you know, that, that we saw with the Trevor Convoy. Uh, one of the things I was, I was talking on a panel um, earlier with uh, John Williamson, who's an MP out in New Brunswick, and you know, I, I hear a lot of people criticizing the conservatives for not standing up against these abuses against our charter, for not standing up and talking about the healthcare issues. And 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 he mentioned that you know at the time during the kind of height of COVID and for the last two years, public opinion has not really been on the side of freedom. Uh, you know, people were afraid. People were very worried. Um, they wanted they wanted lockdowns. Uh, they wanted mandates. They wanted you know people who 
uh, the example that John used uh, were that people who refuse to get vaccinated, they shouldn't just lose their job and their pension and their EI. They should also get removed from our healthcare system and not be and, and be like denied access uh, if, if they needed healthcare. And I, I saw a lot of that sentiment in the media as well. There's a infamous Toronto Star uh, front page that said, "Let them die." I hope I hope unvaccinated people die. Um, and and that, and that was sort of the the narrative that we're hearing from media and the sentiment. And I, I personally noticed a lot of sort of uh, adversarial um, combativeness among Canadians that frankly struck me as un-Canadian uh, people fighting on social media, fighting with their families, disinviting people to Christmas dinner. Uh, I, do, 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 what, what could be done about the, the sort of, I, I don't even know how to describe it, like a totalitarian impulse of, of people uh, when it came to an emergency um, to just use every law possible and um, how can we mend these? You know, it's a divided country right now. How, how can we start to mend some of these uh, divides that have, that have been really, really evident throughout the pandemic? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things that can be done. One is that there, ha there has to be a discussion on the appropriate, appropriateness of these measures. And this business of the cancel culture, we can't talk about that because it's already been decided, whatever. I, I think that has to be very strenuously resisted. And the way one resists it is by insisting that it be talked about, whether it's in your own family or in your own circle or in your own company or in your own community. The second is to take some of these polls with a grain of salt, because a lot depends on how you ask the question. If when the, the, at the height of the, uh, uh, the controversy over the truckers, you, all, all, the only question you asked is sh should the emergency act be invoked in order to uh, make these people adhere to the vaccine mandates? And all you've heard is the propaganda from the government when it introduced this. It's not surprising that 50% of Canadians would say, yeah, I guess that's what you should do. If you ask the question, which of these two options would you prefer? Stopping the truckers by simply canceling the vaccine mandates which caused the protest in the first place, or invoking the Emergencies Act, which came out of the War Measures Act, which of those is, I think a lot of average people say, no, just cancel the mandates that caused this. Other countries are already doing it. The provinces are already doing it. So it very much depends on how you ask the question. And then, then the third thing is that uh, polls will give you a measure of where the public's head is at today, but you don't have to assume that's where it's going to be for three months or four months from now if you work on trying to change it. And I recall back in our day when the, uh, the Charlottetown Constitutional Court came out, it was announced by the prime ministers and all 10 of the premiers said it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And the first polls that said, well, I public said, I guess it's a good thing. Everybody else seems to think had 60, 65% support. But after a, a debate, because that had to go to a national referendum, that side lost. People changed their minds. And uh, the, the people that want opposed that accord, which included ourselves, that became what the majority position was, but it took some time. So I, I think there's things that can be done, but Somebody has to do them, institute the discussion, the counter discussion, uh, frame the questions in some different ways that reveal some different options, and then persist if you really think you're on the right track and eventually you can bring people around to it, uh, persist on that until you do. Well, I think that's very good advice. Hopefully the, uh, the future leadership of the Conservative Party will uh, take note and uh, try to lead uh, rather than just following the polls. Unfortunately, we've seen too many politicians who, who govern that way, Preston. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. It's, it's so, uh, so, so delightful to speak to you and hear your uh, wisdom on Canadian politics. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Candice. It was really a pleasure. 
All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show.